And now, it's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome, everyone, to a special edition of the Lace Them Up podcast. I'm Steve Ellsworth, and uh, before we get on with today's program, I just got some very sad news off the press uh, a couple of hours ago. At the time this is being recorded, it is 7.17 p.m. Ottawa time, Sunday, July 15th, 2018, and uh, it was around 3 o'clock um, maybe a little after that, where word got out that uh, former Senators goaltender Ray Emery had passed away in Hamilton, Ontario. And a few hours later, it was confirmed by Hamilton police that uh, indeed Ray Emery has uh, died suddenly at the age of 35, would have been 36 on September 28th. Here's a tweet from Hamilton police confirming it at 2.50 p.m. Hamilton police service recovered the body of former NHL player Ray Emery Reported missing just after 6 a.m. in Hamilton Harbor. His body was recovered in close proximity to where he was last seen. And uh, what we know from Ontario officials is that um, he died of an apparent drowning in uh, Hamilton Harbor. And uh, it's being ruled as a case of misadventure. The death does not appear to be suspicious. And uh, family has been notified and it's been confirmed by police. So... uh, we're asking you to keep the family and friends of Ray Emery in your thoughts and prayers. He will be deeply and truly missed in the hockey community. Once again, Ray Emery gone far too soon at the age of 35. May he rest in peace. Um, continuing with our conversation here, um, hate to start off with bad news on the, the podcast, but just figured we should address that first. Uh, Today, I got the pleasure of chatting with Colin Teske, and he has been on the show numerous times. Uh, He currently works at Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto. Um, Just finished his shift, as a matter of fact. And Colin has been very kind enough to join us today, been very generous with his time. He's ready to talk hockey. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen. Colin Teske is back on the program Colin, what is up in Toronto? What are you up to? Well, more of the same. I'm still working at uh, Sportsnet 5.9 The Fan. The good, the bad, the testy is also still rolling as well. So not not much has changed as of the last time we talked. Obviously, in sports, there's been plenty going on the last several months, especially with NHL free agency and everything else going on. So more or less the same job-wise, but in terms of the sports world, Steve, it's been it's been crazy as usual. Well, keep on living the dream, buddy. Uh, Speaking of living the dream, uh, the Leafs landed a Toronto-born star in NHL free agency, which, in my opinion, is a sign of the impending apocalypse. And uh, that legend would be John Tavares, now joining a team with Austin Matthews as a possible second-line center and a 30-goal scorer in Nazem Kadri centering the third line. So basically, the Leafs gave Tavares an opportunity that very few talents in this league are going to get. Now... Stan Fischler has been in the NHL media business for a long time and longer than either of us have been alive. He's covered the Devils, he's covered the Rangers, he's covered the Islanders, and he's seen great times, he's seen bad times, and he's gained lots of credibility in the sport. But in an article he wrote following New York's acquisition of Robin Leonard, which we'll get to later on, here's what he said about the ex-Islanders captain. Quote, Tavares could not handle the Islanders' challenge and took the easy way out, end quote. Do you think John Tavares quit on the Islanders, and 
in your opinion, do you think anyone should be criticizing his loyalty? No, I, and I, I don't really agree with that. I respect Stan Fischler. I know he's done a lot in the business, and he's been a very well-respected hockey writer for decades. But I don't agree with that, Steve, because we all know just how tough it is to win in a market like Toronto. Toronto is the mecca of hockey, and, and it's where the media covers that team 24-7. And, and there's been so much turmoil around the Toronto Maple Leafs for years, and for almost a decade they were the laughingstock of the NHL. So now that John Tavares is coming here, there's going to be a lot of pressure that comes with that. I understand that right now the Leafs are winning. They've got young talent. They seem to be trending upward. But I don't see it as quitting and taking the easy route out. I think the work is just getting started, Steve, because now the pressure in Toronto is going to mount. There's going to be expectations. It's a team that's lost in the first round the last two years. We can go on and on about Mike Babcock and how good of a coach he is, but the truth is, He's lost in the first round the last number of years as well. You know, the hot seat's on with him. So John Tavares is coming to a team that's well-rounded, but at the same time, uh, everyone who is a Leaf fan and who covers this team is now expecting this team to compete for a Stanley Cup. Vegas thinks so as well. So I, I think that John Tavares is stepping into a bigger challenge than when he was in Long Island. And here's the thing. Hockey players traditionally are very, very loyal. They don't like to move and they like to stay with the team that drafted them. That's been well-documented with a lot of the star players. We saw Steven Stamkos do it a couple of years ago where he flirted with free agency but ultimately signed back with Tampa Bay. I think John Tavares, what he looked at was a team like Toronto, that he's going to be surrounded by players that are not only good right now but are going to be good for the next five, six, seven years, and he wants to win a Stanley Cup. And when you win in Toronto, you all of a sudden become – talked about more when it comes up for being a hall of famer people are going to weigh that you won in toronto versus the islanders that's just how the business works so i I think john Tavares took a hard look at it steve and said hey i want to really cement my legacy here if i win in toronto i will always be viewed as a legend i'll always be remembered and it's coming back to his hometown there's great photos of him with the Leafs blankets growing up as a kid in mississauga and all that stuff so I, i think just the opportunity was too good to pass up, and he shouldn't be scolded for that. And he shouldn't be being talked about as a guy who quit on a franchise and who took the easy way out. The hard work is yet to begin. Do you think Islanders management did enough to keep John Tavares? Well, that's a good question because I think overall, when I look at the Islanders management, the way this season played out, their hands were tied because they weren't going to give up one of their first-round picks or two first-round picks until they got a solid notion that they knew what John Tavares was doing either way. And they, and they think, already gave up like a first and a second, in, uh, or they actually acquired a first and a second for uh, the Hamannick trade. So they're, they're probably thinking, you know, at the same time we want to keep John Tavares, we want to keep building on the future. It's true, but like people were... We're getting angry at the Islanders at the trade deadline for not doing anything to bolster their team to keep John Tavares there. But I will give management a pass on that because why would you give up a first-round pick or high draft picks when you don't know what John Tavares is going to do in the offseason? Like, you don't want to surrender a high pick only for him to leave you anyway and leave you high and dry. Right. So, no, I, I don't think they're wrong in that sense, but I think the Islanders got caught here thinking that John Tavares was going to be loyal. They thought his personality 
wanted to stay in Toronto and that it was better suited staying in a market like New York, where it's not the main sport that people cover and people talk about day to day. And I think they got caught being complacent there. I think they really did. And I think they only have themselves to blame. And they should have done their homework last summer and really investigate what John Tavares was leaning towards and maybe explore trading him and getting something back. Now they're left with nothing. And it's not like John Tavares is going out to San Jose or the Western Conference, Steve. He's right in the Eastern Conference. And he's still going to be haunting you now throughout the duration of that contract while he's with Toronto with arguably a team that is Stanley Cup ready next year and going to be Stanley Cup ready for the next number of years. Well, you touched on a very interesting point about um, them maybe thinking that Tavares would be too loyal because here's the players that the Islanders have signed on July 1st or in the month of July, in the offseason, in the John Tavares era, dating back to 2011. So it starts with Marty Reasoner. They give him a two-year deal when he was 34 back in 2011. 12 months down the road, the big fish they get is a 30-year-old Brad Boys on a one-year deal. They're able to re-sign Hamnick and Bailey to multi-year contracts in 2013. And the big fish they get in that offseason is Cal Clutterbuck on the 5th of July. Flash forward to 2014, Chad Johnson, Mikhail Grabowski, Nikolai Kuhlman, decent pickups, but anything to blow you away? Not really. 2015, the big name they get is Bracken frickin' Kearns. And then in 2016, you know, they get Andrew Ladd in the offseason, and they are able to um, trade uh, to get Jordan Eberle, um in a one-for-one with Ryan Strom. But I'm just looking at all of the pieces that they have gotten over the years including P.A. Parento, including Thomas Vanek in a trade with Buffalo, which quickly went sour because they eventually found out, oh, he's not going to re-sign with us. Oh, perfect. So I guess we just trade him out of here. Uh, Every single move, it seems, was made to help the offense, but not to help John Tavares. Because when you look at guys like P.A. Parento and Matt Molson, you don't look at them as independent 30-goal scorers no matter which line they play on. You look at them as guys that are just like, okay, we put this kid on Tavares' line, he's going to light it up. So even though they got assets for Tavares to play with, the pressure was still on John Tavares to make something happen. And in the year where they actually won a playoff series, guess who scored the game-time goal in Game 6? Guess who scored the game-winner? John Tavares both times. From day one, it seemed, if John Tavares is healthy and effective, we've got a chance. But if he's not, we're totally screwed. It's true, and and I think the Islanders in years past had failed to build a solid team around him. I would say the last number of years, they've done a really good job drafting. Mm -hmm. They got Matthew Barzal, and guys like Anders Lee turned out to be really good acquisitions and good draft picks by the Islanders. But one thing that I did notice with the Islanders is they really overrated their defense and they didn't address that need the last number of years. And that was a gaping hole this year. You watched Islanders games this year. They were entertaining watching guys like Anders Lee and Barzal and Tavares score six goals a game was entertaining and lead the league in goals. But the problem was they were giving up five, seven, eight goals a game. And you're not going to win in the NHL at that rate. That's why Doug Wake got let go. And I think John Tavares looked at that, and that was kind of the final straw for him. He had seen this team for many years fail to surround him with good players. And how could you say no to a team like Toronto that has guys like Mitch Marner, Austin Matthews, Nylander, still on their rookie deals, 
producing right now and you can argue are going to produce for the foreseeable future. The option to go to Toronto was too good to be true, and it's not like he's going to Toronto when they're coming off a last-place season. Like when Stamkos was a free agent, you can argue the Maple Leafs still hadn't proven they could turn things around yet, and all the pressure was going to be on Steven Stamkos to help restore the Leafs and, and get them back to glory. Exactly. John DeBaris is coming in right now, and Austin Matthews is here. We know Austin Matthews, if he can stay healthy, is a top-five player in the league, and he's going to be a top-five player in the league for the next five or ten years. Marner, Nylander are there. Morgan Riley's a very good defenseman. Frederick Anderson's coming off a career year. There were just too many pieces in place, I think, Steve, for, for John Tavares, and it just made the move coming home to Toronto and with all that pressure that much easier. And a guy like Mike Babcock, you can – you can knock him all you want for some of his decisions on the ice and the ice time he allotted to Austin Matthews. I know that's a big issue, but one thing about Mike Babcock that I really like is he's really good at taking away the attention from star players and putting it on him. And I think John Tavares will realize that Mike Babcock will, will take a lot of the blowback in, in bad times in Toronto, and he's really good at deflecting that from star players. I think that was part of the sales process with Tavares coming home. And you look at not only the Leafs being able uh, to build around just one person, you look at teams like Boston that were in the mix for Tavares, teams like San Jose that were in the mix for Tavares, teams like Dallas, teams like Tampa Bay, teams like Philly that weren't even, even involved, teams like Pittsburgh that weren't even involved. They surrounded their good players with good players that didn't need those elite talents to play alongside them that could still produce 60 to 70 points a year, 20 to 30 goals a year. And the Islanders didn't have that. Uh, quickly, before we continue with the Leafs, uh, what's your outlook on the Islanders this year, and how soon can they return to the NHL playoffs? It's a difficult one because I, I like what they've done off the ice with Lou Lamorello. Uh, we saw what Lou Lamorello did in a short time in Toronto, how he fixed the culture and he was really good at building a team from the ground up. I would argue that he has a better situation than he's walking into today in New York than when he stepped on to the job day one in Toronto. That was an absolute mess that he walked into, and he was able to turn that ship around pretty quick. You got Barry Trotz in there. He's a really good coach. He's got all the motivation in the world after the way he was treated in Washington, how he didn't get the money he deserved after leading that team to a Stanley Cup and finally getting them over that hurdle. Matthew Barzal is going to be the key one here, Steve. I think that he is that generational player that can be a top 10, top 15 player for a number of years. As long as you have a player like that, you're going to be okay. But I think they're just in a weird spot where they have some great young players they picked up in this draft and last year's draft, but they're not going to be ready to make an impact this year or maybe next year. So as a franchise, you now have to weigh, what do we do with players like Jordan Everly? What do we do with players like Anders Lee? Um, are we going to have to move them out of town so we can compete two years from now? Or, or do we try to salvage next year and maybe trade away future assets to go for it next year? They're in kind of this weird, weird spot. But I don't think they're going to be as bad as people think because they've got Matthew Barzal in their back pocket. Right now I'm chatting with Colin Teske, Algonquin College Radio Broadcasting graduate, same class as me, class of uh, 2013, Ottawa-born, Ottawa-raised, now works in Toronto for uh, Sportsnet 590, the fan, and is the host of the Good, the Bad, the Teske podcast. And uh, if you hear background noise, I'm in a live newsroom currently, so uh, <laughs> part of the small price to pay for recording at this time. But anyways, continuing, 
Now we're going to talk about the Toronto Maple Leafs more in depth. And for a guy like Kyle Dubas, who's never been an NHL GM in his life before this gig, has done a lot in his first couple of months and still has plenty to do, uh, especially when it comes to three big names. William Nylander, Mitch Marner, and Austin Matthews. At some point in the next two years, in the case of William Nylander, it's right now, these guys are going to be restricted free agents and they are going to have to get paid. Do you believe Kyle Dubas when he says the Leafs can and will keep their young players intact? I mean, he was really definitive when he said that on the 31 Thoughts podcast with Elliot Friedman and Jeff Merrick, right? Like, it, it seems like this guy is walking in here and he's got a little bit of edge to him, a little bit of moxie as a young GM. And I'm a fan of the Maple Leafs. I want my general manager to come across like that and I want him to have that kind of confidence. But, I mean, it's going to be really tough when you break down the numbers, Steve, to afford all of those guys. And what I think is going to happen is one of them is going to have to be bridged and they're going to have to sign them on a short-term deal and save a little money in the short term. And then you're going to have to risk a couple of years from now that player being really, really good and other teams wanting to give him all the money in the world to sign him. And you're going to have that difficult decision of letting him walk or, or trying to match all those high offers. That's going to be really interesting for me to watch. But if they do go ahead and sign all those players, Steve, basically what you're signing up for as a fan is that you're going to have to get used to having Tavares, Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Morgan Riley as your core, which is fine. That's a great core to start with, but you're going to have to get used to every year you shipping out players and bringing in other players. And you're just going to have to have kind of a revolving door amongst your top six and amongst your bottom six. And that's the only way that this is going to work. We've seen that with Chicago. But if you can win in the next two, three years, all that stuff doesn't matter. That's what Chicago was able to do, but the fallout is Chicago then overpaid for that core and are having difficulty competing now as they enter their 30s and mid-30s. Players like Kane, Taves, and Duncan Keith, and, and Brent Seabrook, and players like that. But that's the only way that it's going to work, but I got full confidence in, in Kyle Dubas that he's going to set out to do that, and he can ultimately accomplish that. Yeah, and for a guy, like I said, who's only been in the GM's chair for a couple of months, it's ballsy to go out and take a shot like that. It gives certainly confidence to the fans and to the players that are playing for you that I want to make this team good for many years to come, and we're going to find a way to keep as many of you here as we can to do that. Um, and if they're able to sign all three, what this will do, like you said, is put more focus onto the other guys that are probably going to, be due for a pay raise in three to four years. Will Jake Gardner still be on the Leafs if Riley and Dermott are the future? And he's an unrestricted free agent after this year. If Freddie Anderson plays lights out, how much money can a team like Toronto fork over for Freddie Anderson? All this is dependent on how much coin they're going to hand out to their young trio of Matthews, Marner, and Nylander. And... With Matthews, it's going to be very, very tough to determine how much he's worth because now, on top of becoming a restricted free agent next year, he just switched agencies, and now he's a part of the agency responsible for Connor McDavid's big payday last offseason. So I'm sure a lot of Leaf fans are hoping that the price to re-sign him isn't too steep, but uh, we see what's happening in Montreal with those monster contracts with Shea Weber and Carey Price. Um how much chaos those big long-term contracts uh, can do to a team. Um, and we talked about the Blackhawks. We'll talk about them later. 
Um, and we touched on the Austin Matthews uh, situation before him, um, maybe not handling the captaincy situation pretty well. The rumors are that, um, you know, he's a, he's a bit unsure of like, you know, who's more deserving of the captaincy, him or Tavares, that there's a rift with him and Mike Babcock and Bobby Orr, uh, like the wise grandparent that he is basically told the media, Hey, chill out. Do you think the Austin Matthews situation is being overblown or should we actually be concerned for a second? I don't think we should be concerned about who gets the captaincy. I think that is being drawn up right now and it's becoming a media a media sticking point that they're trying to, to, to get a lot of clicks on and they're trying to get a lot of press on. I, I think the Austin Matthews Mike Babcock rip does have some concerning weight to it. I think the fact that Mike Babcock, the minute the season ended, had to fly to Arizona to, to talk with Austin Matthews is telling. I think that that's an issue that can be resolved. And I, I think one thing that obviously will fix all of those things is winning. And if the Maple Leafs win, which they've done a lot of in the regular season in the last two years, all of those issues that we're talking about now don't matter. So that'll solve a lot of these issues. But with John Tavares, I wonder if he was being pried away from the Islanders and if the Leafs, which I imagine they did from all that I've read, they made an incredible pitch to Tavares. I wonder if in that pitch it was coming home to Toronto and playing for your, your, your boyhood team, but as being the captain of that boyhood team. Like that to me would have been something that if you were really worried that he was going to go elsewhere and that one of these other teams during the courting process could offer him $13 million, like allegedly San Jose did, I wonder if the Leafs threw in the captaincy to put their offer over the edge. And if they did, yeah, I don't know. I'm not in the Leafs' room. I don't know what Austin Matthews would think of that. But I think if you're Austin Matthews, you might, as an ego point, you might want that captaincy. But at the same time, you have to realize, John Tavares is a hell of a player. He's going to make your life easier just playing on your team and matchup-wise. Other teams' blue lines are going to have a tough time picking between Matthews' line and Tavares' line. So I think if you're Matthews, you have to look at the whole picture and say, having John Tavares here, even if he has a C on his crest or not, makes my life a whole lot easier. And uh, given the fact uh, that he congratulated John Tavares, was excited to have him come to Toronto um, the day of the announcement, um, kind of makes me wonder that... Um, Maybe he's not jealous at all and is more concerned about winning championships. And speaking of winning, Tampa Bay Lightning have done a lot of winning over the past couple of years. And just when you think they're done paying people, they come out of nowhere and ink the offensive face of the franchise for the past few years. Um, Steven Stamkos, they've already done that with him. And now they've done it with Nikita Kucherov, which is interesting because initially wasn't eager to talk negotiations uh, this offseason. And the next thing you know, he's getting paid an average annual value of $9.5 million after his contract expires next season. And it's an eight-year deal on top of that. So no doubt about it, this is a lot of money to be paying Nikita Kucherov. Do you think it's actually a bargain signing, though? Bargain I have a tough time with because, you know, $9.5 million for a winger is a lot of money in the NHL. You're talking Alex Ovechkin kind of money, and I know that Kucherov is coming off a 100-point season, but typically you don't see that amongst wingers. But 
Tampa Bay is able to go out there and pay Kucherov that kind of money because they have an absolute bargain of a deal with Steven Stamkos. The way Steve Eiserman was able to negotiate that and how he got Steven Stamkos to take less money than he could have got on the table in free agency is remarkable. So, so they're able to pay Kucherov this kind of money, and I think it's a good deal for Tampa Bay. And they knew if they didn't give him this kind of money, someone else was going to give him that, that, that kind of money. But I think $9.5 million, I wouldn't say it's a bargain, but for a 100-point guy, you got to pay that kind of money. Well, uh, we haven't talked about it on the show just yet, so I won't go too in-depth with my response, but he scored at least 29 goals in four straight years, one goal shy of his second straight 40-goal campaign this past year, one of the few in the league to hit 100 points uh, in 2017-2018, as you mentioned, and the only guy that's registered more points than Cooch over the past two years is some guy named Connor McDavid, and he's getting paid over $12 million a year in his next deal. Uh, now, is it possible that he continue to play at this pace from here on out? That's tough to say, but he's one of the few guys in this league that I would be willing to pay that kind of money, especially considering that he has the weapons around him. And speaking of the weapons around him, um, you would think that after signing Nikita Kucherov to that kind of money, there's no way the Bolts would still be a threat to land Eric Carlson, and yet they still are. So if they get Eric Carlson, is this the best team we've seen on paper in the salary cap era? That's a very good question. I would argue yes. I mean, I'm not trying to disrespect those great Chicago Blackhawks teams when they won their first Stanley Cup back in 2010 with that core of Taves, Kane, Seabrook, Keith, like those guys were coming up at the right time. They were all roughly around the same age in the prime of their careers. That was a pretty damn good hockey team that we watched a number of years ago. But I would have to say so, just on paper, when you have a 100-point player like Nikita Kucherov signed long-term, you've got Steven Stamkos, who you know can get you 35, 40 goals per season. I even like Braden Point and all their young players, Victor Hedman, this would, I would say, yes, is the best team that we've seen in the salary cap era. I don't know how they're going to make it work, and, and I still don't know if Steve Eiserman can maneuver around the cap enough to make Eric Carlson's contract work in Tampa Bay, but I almost want to see it because it would be by far the best team we have seen on paper in the salary cap era. And you look at what they've done over the past few weeks. They've locked up JT Miller and Ryan McDonough for at least five years each. Now Kucherov's sticking around for at least nine more years, counting the final year of his current contract. Uh, you're giving roughly $12 million in average annual value combined to those three guys for at least four years. And if you add Hedman's average annual value, Stammers, Tyler Johnson, for six players, that's $33.375 million between those six guys for the next four years. And that doesn't take into account the pending contract extensions for Braden Point, for Mikhail Sergachev, and at some point down the line, Andre Vasilevsky. So it would absolutely be crazy if they could make this work. Now, as exciting as it would be to see the Leafs and the Lightning going at it and Hedman and Carlson on the same team, for Sens fans like you and me, the thought of trading Eric Carlson is just downright depressing, especially considering where the Sens were this time last year. Uh, what would you consider a solid return for Carlson, and do you think he's still in Ottawa come September? 
I don't think he's in Ottawa come September, to be quite frank with you. I, I think that everything that's happened this calendar year, Eric Carlson and, and his family, they deserve a fresh start. That, that's just, there's no way around it. Yeah. And I don't blame him for wanting out of that situation and wanting to go to a contending team and, and try to start his career fresh somewhere else. And I think that he, at this point in his career, he ultimately can decide that, and he deserves that. Now, for his return, I mean, what, what's, what's happening right now is that Ottawa clearly wants to trade him, but they're not being blown away by any offer. And if you're Pierre Dorian, this is going to be a career-altering move. Yeah, you're going to be you're could... going to be known as the guy that trades Eric Carlson. Exactly, you're going to be known as the guy that traded Eric Carlson. So, for your own career and your own sake, you better make sure you get an absolutely great return. You've also got away the fact that if you trade Carlson and get nothing back, this franchise could be set back for a long time. And this is a franchise that, in every department, has been bleeding the last twelve months. And they are the most comical team in a sad way in the NHL. So this is the deal that is going to, A, maybe partially restore some faith in the fan base if you can get a good return, but also it could further drive the the, the constant battle between this fan base and this team that has been going on, I would say, for the last five years. Like There's been a big malaise between this team and its fan base, and there's been a lack of trust amongst the fan base and, and this current group for a long time, if they mess up this Carlson deal and they get lowballed and they accept an offer for just the sake of accepting an offer, it's only going to further that disconnect, Steve. And I would say if you look at the Matt Duchesne deal, Joe Sackick for a while was trying to trade Matt Duchesne, but he didn't quickly move on a deal for the sake of moving him and getting rid of him, and he took a lot of heat for that. Apparently it was damaging in the locker room and you know, there, there seemed to be a dark cloud around Colorado, but when you ultimately look at the return he got, I would say that he did a really good job getting Matt Duchesne out of town, but also getting a lot back in return. I think Eric Carlson, you take that deal, which you times it by two. Because Eric Carlson's a top three player when he's 100% healthy. Yeah. And, and you got to think, uh, you're starting with a roster player that's top six. I would say a couple first-round picks. Your top prospect. And maybe you throw in another B-minus prospect and a second-round pick. That's where I would start with Eric Carlson. And if I'm Pierre Dorian, you need to set the marketplace. Like, you need to be calling teams and saying, this is what I want. If you think that's acceptable, give me a call. Anything less, I'm not returning your call. And I think what he has started to do is he has started to, you know, call other teams. And I think the, the story about Tampa Bay being a front-runner I think that is just driving up the value. I don't know if Tampa Bay, with their cap situation, can actually land Eric Carlson. Who knows if the if the Dorian camp and the Sens camp is leaking that story out there to the media to make teams like Vegas and Dallas sweat a bit and make them offer even more in return. And I think that's what has to happen. And I think the fact that a deal hasn't been done is because teams are lowballing the Ottawa Senators and Pierre Dorian saying, look, I'm not making this move until I am 100% satisfied with what I'm getting back in return. And you know what? This, this could drag out, Steve, to the start of the season. Mm-hmm. Like, teams right now and players, like, I'm looking at Eric Carlson's Instagram and his, his social media. He's on holidays. He doesn't want to think about a trade. Yeah. You know, he wants to enjoy the few weeks he has off. Kick back, relax, see family, go see the world and do all those things. And general managers have to do the same thing. So I, I think this could drag on to the start of the season. But it all comes down to what the Sens create in terms of a marketplace. 
and teams are going to swoop in and try to lowball you because Ottawa has this black eye around their franchise after all that's happened to them. Teams are swooping in right now trying to just get whatever they can, and they're thinking that Ottawa's going to be desperate. So Ottawa has to come out here and create the front that they don't have to move them. They have a whole year left on that contract. The two sides can come back to the table and say, well, Eric, you're starting the year with us. He could be an Ottawa center starting game one of the year. He could still be here. Mm-hmm. But it's all about the marketplace you create, and this is why if I'm Pierre Dorian, I do not envy him. I do not want to be Pierre Dorian right now, and that's a man that whenever I see him make speech at a press conference, he looks run down. Like, he looks like a guy who has been overworked and is not sleeping much, and I don't blame him because this is going to be one heck of a move regardless of what happens. That defines his career and it defines the Senator's path going forward. And that's not an easy place to be, and I don't envy that. Remember the time where he became the guy for getting Matt Duchesne? Wow, that was a happier time for Pierre Dorian, and now this could happen and make people forget all about that. By the way, Matt Duchesne is an unrestricted free agent after this year, so you'll have fun with that, I'm sure, and probably Mark Stone as well. So, yeah. Definitely a lot of sleepless nights uh, ahead for Pierre Dorian. Uh, for me, at least your top prospect, top six forward slash top four defense in a first round. That, that at the very least, for me, would be a good return for Carlson. Now, the fact that we're even talking about this is so mind-boggling. Like, how in the world did the Sens let things fall apart so quickly? Because the last time we had a one-on-one conversation... Um, Sens just lost to Vegas. The tourist deal appeared to be next. The next day it happens. The wheels slowly started to fall off the rails. And now, potentially, Eric Carlson could be leaving the Ottawa Senators. Do you think Carlson leaving is going to be the final straw for Eugene Melnick in Ottawa? Because I remember a very specific conversation during the outdoor game weekend with local media that he definitely pondered the future of this team if it became a disaster. And losing Eric Carlson would kind of qualify as a disaster to me. Well, I mean, I, I think for someone like Eugene Melnick, yes. I mean, this is this is a move that, I mean, you make this move and and already you are setting yourself up for failure. And I, I look at an Eric Carlson, and I don't blame him for wanting to move on. Uh, he has every right to do that, given what's happened here. But I think a big part of the unraveling, Steve, that isn't getting talked about enough is that you know, when Brian Murray was around, yeah, I think Brian Murray it was such a classy guy, and he'd been around for so long, he'd seen everything in the business. He knew top to bottom what it took to run a franchise, and I think what he was probably best at was being the perfect middle guy to deal with Eugene Melnick. And I think that's the underrated part here. Eugene Melnick, from everything uh, I've read, and from people I know that work closely with the team, he's a tough guy to deal with. And I think Brian Murray was really good at tiptoeing around all of Eugene Melnick's antics and still being able to keep that all behind closed doors and not let that get out to the media. And I think that is where this unraveling has started. Um, it starts with Brian Murray not being around. It also starts with a guy like Cyril Leader who has been around the sports business forever Mm -hmm. and was a great community ambassador with the team and had so many connections in Ottawa and did so much for that franchise. When he left, Murray left, they were never really able to replace those two guys. And I think that's where all of this started to unravel because you have to think 
if the rift between Hoffman and Carlson and their wives and fiancés started in November, that's when, when you read the court case, that's when everything was alleged to have started. Mm-hmm. I just have to think, and this is just my own personal opinion, I think Brian Murray would have been the guy, being the veteran hockey man that he is, that would have sat those guys down, dealt with it then, and realized, okay, this isn't going to be salvageable here. One of you is going to go or both of them have to go, and he would have dealt with that issue then, and it would not have dragged on. And that's where I think the biggest disconnect has started, and I think a guy like Brian Murray, if he was around right now, this would have never happened. Yeah, and on top of that, you got the whole Randy Lee allegations, too. I, I do think there's a sense of accountability that's missing at at some facet of uh, the Sens organization. Um, and the other thing to think about with the Eric Carlson thing is when this team lost Daniel Alfredson in 2013, Alfie was nearing the end of his career, and they still had Carlson to help sell tickets. When they lost Tourist last year, it was the same thing. Oh, well, we still got Carlson to sell tickets. Now with one year on his deal, a franchise favorite, the third straight captain appearing to be on his way out, and just nearing the prime of his career, they could lose Eric Carlson. And at that point, who's going to be your marketing guy? Mark Stone? I mean, the dude competes, and I love Mark Stone. He's awesome. But he doesn't have the marketing power that Eric Carlson has. And that is why... This could be the final straw for some Ottawa Senators fans. So, Colin, my question to you is, do you think the Sens have a future in the city if Eric Carlson is out of here? And are you still a Sens fan? Well, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that as much as that, you know, I grew up in Ottawa and, and I did root for that team growing up. Obviously, when you grow up in a city like that and you watch the likes of Daniel Alfredson and Keatley and Spezza and that 2007 Cup run was one of the best times of my life growing up there and a big part of my childhood, but working in this business, and you know this, uh, you become less of a fan, and you become more of a um, rooter for storylines, and you want to have interesting stuff to write about, interesting stuff to talk about. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if it's your hometown team or it's the Maple Leafs, the Montreal Canadiens, and it, it's made me less of a fan since I've worked in this business. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you look at this team and their fan base, and you know if ultimately Eric Carlson gets traded, which I believe will happen, I, I don't blame this fan base for not wanting to show up and support them. This is not about. This is not on the fans. This is not on the fans. They, they, they've been through a lot, and it's not just one thing, Steve. That's happened. I always say it's death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some of the things that happened. The Alfie miss mishap when he left to go to Detroit. That was a big one. Spezza leaving. That was a big one. The tourist contract situation. That was also part of it. That just made a lot of fans not believe that this manager wanted to commit to winning. And the Alfie and Turner situation, well. to be fair, neither of those guys wanted to leave. They didn't no. say, get me out of here. No, and that's where it becomes hard for fans to stomach that. And you can still argue, Steve, with, with Spezza and Alfredson, you knew that most of their best hockey was behind them. Yeah. Even with Kyle Turris, I think you could still make the argument that the length of the contract was a bit worrisome for Sens management to sign, but when it comes to Eric Carlson, the Sens have never had a more talented player and a superstar of this caliber right in the prime of his career, and losing him now is what's going to sting the most, especially if you don't get a good return for him. And I think that could be one of the final blows, but I think one thing that could fix all of this, and I've been saying this since day one when people ripped the Senators for their attendance issues over the years, 
My thing is if you build a downtown arena, I think that'll create a lot of buzz. Even if you lose Eric Carlson, once they build the downtown rink and they start playing games downtown, I think you're going to just see a revitalization amongst the fan base that now all of a sudden can realize, wait, on a Tuesday night, I don't have to worry about trekking to Canada, worrying about parking, getting home. You can now plan a night going downtown. You can go for an early dinner, see the game, pour out to a bar after the game, and you know you don't have to worry about going across the city. And I think that could be something that if they build a great downtown arena, that could be the jewel of the city, and then the fans are going to want to go check out that experience. We saw the same thing happen in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And Edmonton was awful for almost a decade, but the minute they got a new arena, all of a sudden people started going back to the arena again. They started going to games again, and there was just a new found appreciation for that. I think that could do a lot of wonders and and, and helping rebuild the malaise that has happened between Sens fans and this team. And, you know, that's where the the trust has to be rebuilt. I think fans are just yelling for a downtown arena. They've been yelling for one for years. Now it seems like they have progress. The Sens have to make that happen. They have to make that happen soon for me to have any faith in, in Sens fans starting to support that team again. Yeah, as a Canada resident, that would suck going to downtown, but it would be a small price to pay if it meant uh, to see sellout crowds every night. Now, uh, talking about teams in the Atlantic Division trying to buy back the trust of their fans, um, the Montreal Canadiens have got some issues of their own. Uh, They wanted to speak with John Tavares face-to-face during the negotiation process. He wanted no part of that. Uh, by the sounds of things, they just want Max Pacioretty out of there. They're not eager to talk contract extensions with him. Uh, found out that Shea Weber is not going to be ready to start the year. God willing, Price will be. Uh, and Price and Weber are getting paid a lot of money. Oh, and where's that legit number one center they've been looking for? Oh, wait. Yeah, it's still not there. Do you think the Canadians are in a worse position than the Sens right now? I absolutely do. And here's why. And and I don't want to sound biased here, but um, for the reasons you just mentioned, the, the Montreal Canadiens have never been able to find that number one center, it seems like, forever. And they have these huge albatross contracts they have to worry about now. And Shea Weber, uh, I won't say albatross in the sense of a bad contract necessarily for Carey Price, but they've signed him for a long, long time. And he's making $10.5 million a year. You know, so those are two really hard contracts. All of a sudden, you've got two players making a good chunk of your cap. They've shown an inability to draft really, really well. And I don't see a whole lot of young players coming up that give me a lot of enthusiasm. With the Senators, at least, even if you lose an Eric Carlson. Eric Carlson, that's going to be very detrimental to this team and their fan base. I can still point to the drafting of Thomas Shabbat, Drake Bathurst, and Alex Formanton, uh, Brady Kachuk. I have heard so much buzz about their recent prospects camp that I can't remember that I've heard for a long, long time. And I think fans are generally excited with the way that their prospects are developing, and they seem to have a good group of them coming up at the same time. So as much as there's a lot of negativity around Ottawa right now, one thing I can point to is that they have proven that they can find players, not only like in the first round of the draft, they're finding gems later in the draft, whether it's Mark Stone or or Dezingle, finding Drake Batherson in the fourth round, even getting Eric Carlson at 15 overall. I was there when it happened live. Yeah, and and over the years, they have at least proven they know what they're doing with scouting. And I know Pierre Dorian, he gets ripped all the time. 
being the general manager of the Ottawa Senators. But one thing about Pierre Dorian that, that made his mark in the league, he's a great amateur scout. He has a great eye for prospects and great eye for talent. Montreal, you cannot say the same. And that's where I think if you're a fan of that team, you have less hope in them. And, and you're watching this team now that's pretty old. And you look at their star players, and they're working out a lot of money for guys like Shea Weber, who have played a lot of hockey. You're arguably, or you're probably going to lose, sorry, you're probably going to lose Max Pacioretty. And I, I look at them, and I see a team that doesn't have a whole lot of guys coming up in the system that have me excited as a fan. So I think Ottawa's in way better shape than Montreal. Sticking with uh, teams facing uncertain futures, uh, the Blue Jackets have a couple of key names to re-sign in about a year. Uh, both of them are Russians. One of them is their best offensive player in Artemi Panarin. Another is their franchise goaltender, Sergei Bobrovsky. So they figure, oh, okay, we can re-sign Panarin to a seven- or eight-year deal. You know, he's a superstar. We got the money to pay him. And then Artemi Panarin's agent, Dan Milstein, said this recently, quote, It's about whether he wants to spend the next eight years in Columbus. That's the only thing at stake right now. If it was a two-year deal, we would have probably done it, but it isn't a two-year deal. It's going to have to be an extended seven- or eight-year deal put in place. There's never been a disagreement or argument with anybody. We've been truthful and honest. I've told Panarin of the risk, but he said it was a good time to let the team know so that they could plan ahead. We told them before the NHL draft took place. So this was back in June. Uh, so in other words, Artemi Panarin might not want to spend the rest of his life in Ohio. So what does his hesitation to sign with Columbus say about the Blue Jackets? And do you think this could pose a problem when they try to re-sign Bobrovsky? I don't know what it says about the Blue Jackets necessarily, Steve. I, I think from what I've read, um, Artemi Panarin wants to be um, closer to a coastal city. Um, and, and more specifically, I have been reading that uh, New York is a really big destination that he wants to go to. And a lot of Russian people apparently live in New York. And I, I can't speak to this, but from what I'm reading, coming over and playing in the NHL from Europe is a really big adjustment for certain players. And mm -hmm. for a guy like Artemi Panarin, it was apparently a really tough adjustment. And at least living in Chicago, um, he had a lot of Russian immigrants that were living there, and he did feel like he had a sense of community there. Whereas when you live in Ohio, in middle America, uh, there isn't necessarily that same feeling of being surrounded by people from your home. And that's what I'm reading about, and there's nothing that Columbus can do about that. Geographically, they are not a big international city like Chicago, Toronto, or New York, and they never mm -hmm. will be. So I don't think they should apologize for that, but it is – you know, it is really a tough situation to be in if you're Columbus because, I mean, you've just started building a really good team here. And the last number of years, they've been a good team. They just have not been able to, to knock off the top teams, whether it's Washington or Pittsburgh, but they're really close. And I, I still feel like they're under good management. They draft really well. And it's a shame that Artemi Panarin wants to leave right now because I feel like Columbus is that hidden team in the Eastern Conference that could really make some noise and, and be a good team. As long as they have Bobrovsky playing the way he's playing, they're a threat every year in the Eastern Conference. So it's a shame that Panarin wants to leave this team as of right now, but I will never fault a player for 
wanting to choose where they want to live. And if that's a coastal city like New York, players have the right to do that. It's their life. They can choose where they want to live. And if Columbus is not your style, you can't knock a player for that. So I, I see both sides of it, but I don't think it's a Columbus being a bad place to play thing. I think it's more of a player's preference and there's nothing the Columbus Blue Jackets can do about that. Yeah, I I just find it like totally taking me off guard because it's just like, oh, it's not because you don't like playing with John Tortorella as your coach. It's just hey, that, that it's not near it. a body you, of water. <laughs> you never you never know, but I'm reading like, I'm telling you, I'm reading reports yeah. that, that it it's that he wants to be um near a coastal city where there's more Russian people living. And I know New York has a very high Russian population. So Mm -hmm. that was something that I did read, but maybe it is a John Tortorella thing. I've been, you know, a a casual admirer of John Tortorella, especially during his TV days with TSN. He's a very entertaining guy, very animated guy, uh, speaks his mind. Yeah. Like the Jack Johnson thing is perfect example of that. You sometimes want that, but I can understand playing under him. You might not necessarily be a fan of that style. But just ask players like Martin St. Louis, Vincent LeCavalier, Brad Richard, talented players. They won a cup with John Tortorella uh, in 2003-2004. So um, they, they swore by him, and they said that he made them a better hockey player, as tough as he was. But they had a mutual respect there, knowing that, yeah, he might be animated and he might be – you know, yelling and screaming and seem like he's tough to work with, but they knew it was coming from a good place, and he was just trying to make them better, and ultimately they they paid the price for that guy, and they they owe a lot of their success to him. So I will say that about John Tortorella, and there's a reason why he keeps getting jobs, and he keeps getting work in the NHL. And yes, it might rub certain players the wrong way, but John Tortorella, well-respected guy, he's gone to the, the height of the league, winning a Stanley Cup and taking teams to you know, lots of success in the regular season and postseason. So he, he's a guy that his act, antics might be a little outrageous, but he gets it done. End of the day, you can't argue that. Yeah, and um, see, the thing with Panarin is, as talented as he is, and it seems every year it's a career year for him, um, the Columbus Blue Jackets still have Kim Atkinson. Oliver Bjorkstrand has taken strides as well. Uh, Boone Jenner a couple of years ago was one of their top goal scorers. And if Nick Foligno um, can play like the top line player we know he can play at, you know, that's a, a pretty big move too. And their back end with Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski, it seems to be getting better and better every year as well. But if they lose Sergei Bobrovsky, that's where the uncertainty is really going to kick in because over the past couple of years, Jonas Corposalo hasn't really proven himself to me anyway to be a capable goaltender in this league. They don't have any goalie prospects that stick out to me. Basically, Sergei Bobrovsky is the backbone. And while Panarin is their main goal scorer and puts up a lot of points, at the end of the day, if you have Sergei Bobrovsky stopping pucks the Columbus Blue Jackets could still be a wildcard team. But if they don't have Bobrovsky back there, I don't like their chances, especially in the Metro Division. Anyways, getting away from the Metro Division, we're going to talk about the Central Division, which is just as stacked as the Metro is. The St. Louis Blues have done a lot this offseason. They've gotten Tyler Bozak through free agency. Same with David Perron. Same with uh, Missouri native Patrick Maroon. And they also got Ryan O'Reilly in a trade to help bolster their power play. 
However, they did lose Carter Hutton to the Buffalo Sabres. And once again, the focus is on Jake Allen and their defense. So have the Blues done enough to this point to make themselves a solid playoff contender, maybe Central Division winners, or are they still a fringe wildcard team that probably isn't going anywhere? Well, what was interesting when you when you look back at the St. Louis Blues, Steve, they were right in the mix around the trade deadline. They were a competitive team, and at one point during the season, early in the year, they were one of the best teams in the NHL, and everyone was finally thinking this was going to be the year the St. Louis Blues run away with things and finally get it done. But at the trade deadline, they shocked me, especially, and a lot of people, when they dealt Paul Stastny. Mm-hmm. And from the reports you read coming out of the room, everyone was pretty taken aback by that. And I say that, and, and I read the reports a little bit more, and the players were just kind of shocked. And they thought they had a chance to win. And when they made a move like that, you can argue that with Paul Stastny going to the last year of his deal, they wanted to get something for them, for him. And they did that. But the players were kind of sitting there saying, wait, you know, like, we thought we could win here, but I guess management didn't think we could win. And when I look at what they're doing in the offseason, it seems like they're trying to rebuild that trust. I mean, you go out and get Ryan O'Reilly, they didn't pay a cheap price to get him. Uh, All their other signings, to me, are showing that they are trying to tell everyone in that room, Jaden Schwartz's, the Colton Pareko's, the Alex Petrangelo's, that, hey, we're committed to this group. We believe you can win. Now we're going to go out and get you some help. Mm-hmm. Uh, is Ryan O'Reilly better than Paul Stastny? You can argue that all you want. I still think that they are a team that is going to be hard-pressed to advance far in the Stanley Cup playoffs, Steve, because Nashville, I think, is still going to be really good, and their window is still open. Yeah, I think the Winnipeg Jets, that's a team that's just getting started and I think is going to be the future of the Western Conference. So I, I don't know how far, how successful St. Louis is going to be, but you might as well take your shot the next two years when you've got some players that are still in the prime of their career. And you can't knock a GM like Doug Armstrong for trying that. And then on top of Nashville and Winnipeg being division threats, there's also Dallas, Colorado, who had a bounce back year without Matt Duchesne and the Minnesota Wild, who are still a pretty good team in their own right. Uh, the San Jose Sharks traded for Mike Hoffman about a month ago quickly traded him away to Florida after that. And before doing any of that, they re-signed Evander Kane. Um, They re-signed Logan Couture, Thomas Hurdle, and Joe Thornton after missing out on Tavares. Last year, they signed Martin Jones and Mark Edward Vlasic to long-term deals. Do you think they're done making waves this offseason, or do you think they have another trick or two up their sleeve? Well, you have to think that they have another trick up their sleeve. I think they really thought they had a legitimate chance to sign John Tavares, and there were reports out there that they were throwing $13 million at John Tavares, and they still didn't land their number one center. And Joe Thornton's not getting any younger, so is Brent Burns and Mark Edward Vlasic. I will say this about the Sharks. They're in a division that... I still think is very winnable. And as, as good as Vegas was, and as much as people keep underestimating them, and they were very close to winning a Stanley Cup, Vegas is a team that will be interesting to watch next year. I don't know how good they're going to be. They could be a team that I could see being a fringe playoff team next year. L.A. is a team that I think is on the downswing of their window. Who knows if Edmonton can rebound? I think Calgary is, is an up-and-coming team that underachieved this year, and now with James 
O'Neill could be really good. But if you're the Sharks, I think if you just stand pat, you're still going to be a competitive team in that division. And with the current playoff system, the first two rounds are against your own division. I still think you can feel confident with your core of Couture, Pavelski, Burns, Vlasic, and now Evander Kane, and Martin Jones and Nett, that you could still be the top team in that conference. And you'll be tough to knock off. So I think they just have to be smart about who they add. And I don't think they should just go and throw a bunch of money at somebody in free agency, especially with the crop that's left. There's not a lot of good players left. But I still think they're in a good position to be competitive in that division and then maybe make the second or third round next year. And after that, it's anyone's gamble on who's going to win. So they're still in really good shape, I think. Well, when you look at the Mike Hoffman trade and anyone who thinks, oh, you know, they traded Hoffman because of the allegations surrounding his girlfriend, they didn't want anything to do with that. They signed Evander Kane, who's uh, had an interesting past with social media, to a seven-year extension. So I don't think character is a big problem for this team. They seem to be very welcoming and very open to um, a lot of uh, different walks of life in the dressing room. So it wouldn't surprise me if they added a top six talent, but I think it's nothing that they're in any hurry to do. I think... It happened. I don't think it's going to happen before the season begins. It wouldn't surprise me if it did. Um, but I think it's going to happen via trade. I think Skinner, Patches, Panarin could be some of the names that they target because Mike Hoffman, Mike Hoffman was a left winger. JVR was also a left winger. JVR was the first guy that came to my mind as well. And they quickly traded Hoffman away, who on a bad sense team, did pretty decent. You know, he got, I think, 22 goals last year and over 50 points. So on a bad year, he played pretty well. So I think if they do add someone, it's going to be um, so, uh, a winger they can slot um, in, on the first or second line. So we'll see who that uh, mysterious player is going to be. But I don't think uh, they're done uh, adding pieces there. Um, the following teams are all got 80 points last year. Not even close to the San Jose Sharks. Buffalo, Ottawa, Arizona, Montreal, Vancouver, Detroit, Chicago, New York Rangers, Edmonton. Pick one of those teams to make the playoffs this year and explain what would it take for that team to get there. Okay, well, Ottawa, Arizona, Montreal, Vancouver, and Detroit, I can confidently say are not going to be playoff teams next year. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. (laughs) But I will say this, uh, one team that I think is going to be very intriguing to watch, and this is going to be, going to feel dirty leaving my mouth, Steve, but Buffalo is a team to really watch out for. Jack Eichel has not been healthy the last year. If they get a full year of health by Jack Eichel, which I know is asking a lot, (laughs) that all of a sudden makes them better. I really like Casey Middlestad, and if you watch the World Junior Tournament and how well he played for Team U.S., that's a player that I think could easily be a bonafide 25-goal, 30-goal scorer in the National Hockey League. He can now slot in potentially as your second-line center. Linus Allmark is a goaltender to watch out for. They also signed Carter Hutton. Yeah, as a good, I'm not even going to say a safety net. He could easily win the starting role. Yeah, but I think it's going to be really good goaltending competition come training camp with those two fighting for the number one spot. And competition, I think, will breed the best possible scenario in net for Buffalo. So I think they're a team to watch. You got Rasmus Dahlin coming in, who is supposed to be the next Eric Carlson. It's supposed to be really, really good. So I think Buffalo could really surprise a lot of people. And I think that Jack Eichel is looking around. 
at players that were drafted around the same time he was. Connor McDavid in the same year as him. Austin Matthews, his fellow countryman, doing so well in Toronto, just up the road. you got to think Jack Eichel is going to have that chip on his shoulder to really go out there and prove himself that he is worth all the money they paid him and, and that he is in the same conversation as those players. So I would say watch out for Buffalo. But Edmonton's the team, I, I think, that's going to most rebound and could be in the playoffs. But they went to the second round a year before. I really think that Cam Talbot can't be as bad as he was last year. We've seen the good Cam Talbot. We've seen the bad Cam Talbot. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's going to be better. And you got Connor McDavid. And you got to think Connor McDavid, being the competitor that he is, is going to be good enough. And he's going to lift that team up. And they can't be as bad as they were last year. So Edmonton's that one team. I just think for the health of the league, Steve, you have to have Connor McDavid, arguably the best player in the game, playing in the playoffs and playing when all the eyeballs are on your sport. And having Edmonton not in it, just from a Canadian standpoint and a Canadian media standpoint, is a bad look for the league. So I have to think in my heart I want them to make it, but I do think they can't be as bad as they were on the ice last year. And they got too many smart people working there. Todd McClellan's a really good coach. I think he's going to get the most out of that group again. Yeah, Edmonton's a, a pretty solid pick and probably the most likely to. The problem with Buffalo is that um, the top three teams in their division are probably going to be the top five teams in the league, assuming Boston doesn't regress. And if you're hoping for one of the wild card spots to be available, probably don't bet the house on that because they're probably going to go to the Metro division again. So, Also, I want to throw this in there as well. Because um, people are probably already going to get mad at me for picking Buffalo and think I'm crazy yeah. picking Buffalo. Okay. Watch out for Arizona. Yeah, they have, they have been rebuilding and under the radar for the last number of years, and they've taken a lot of heat, and most of it is justifiable. They played really well in the second half of the year and were beating some really good teams, and they were playing a lot of their young guys. And, and some people didn't like that they were throwing their young guys into the mix right away and giving them all that ice time. I think that's going to pay off. Arizona could be a team to watch out for as a surprise team, and I don't necessarily think their division is that tough. When you compare it to Buffalo playing in the Atlantic, Arizona has a very winnable division. Mm-hmm. And you got to think Galchenyuk, he's going to want to prove himself, and I think Arizona, they're going to make the right move and just put him at center ice, not move him to the wing, not experiment there. Make him your number one center, and we've seen Alex Galchenyuk dominate as a centerman. Now that he's going to a fresh start, not in a hockey market like Arizona, he could have a really big bounce back year. So I would watch out for Arizona. They're actually the team that I picked, as a matter of fact. See, we're not crazy. Yeah, See? yeah. The, the thing is, um, last year they had, I think, a 10, 11, 12-game losing streak at the start of last year. That killed their playoff chances. Um, I also think Strom's going to have to be at his best. Dylan Strom's going to have to make an impact in the NHL level. Um, Galchenyuk, like you said, has to have a good year. Derek Stefan needs to be at his best. And Ranta needs to be healthy and firing on all cylinders. Because, like you said, in the second half, this team was firing. And largely because of that, a uh, guy between the pipes and anti Ranta. This guy was one of the NHL's top goalies in goals against average and save percentage following the All-Star break. So if he has a second half all throughout this season... This team could absolutely surprise and maybe be a wild card team, uh, uh, a playoff team uh, for for sure out of the Western Conference. I 
We're just waiting for them to put it together. And uh, Brett actually thought they were going to be a fringe playoff team last year. Obviously, it didn't happen. But uh, I think more and more people are starting to catch on uh, to Arizona. And uh, you look at a lot of the teams like L.A. and Anaheim, and they're getting older. You know, one of those teams could easily regress. Uh, So we'll see what happens there. Uh, Speaking of teams that could regress, the following NHL teams all got over 100 points last season. Nashville, Winnipeg, Tampa Bay, Boston, Vegas, Toronto, Washington, Anaheim, Minnesota, San Jose, and Pittsburgh. Pick one of those teams to miss the playoffs and explain why they would be going golfing in early April. Oh, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I mean, look, I I said it earlier on the podcast, and people are going to climb all over me for this as well because I was knocking Vegas even when they were winning all those games this year and through the playoffs. I still couldn't believe that they were winning every round, but I'm going to say the Vegas Golden Knights have got a chance of missing the playoffs next year. Everything went right for that team this year, and they played great under Gerard Gallant. And I'm not taking anything away from the run that they had, but I look at some of the additions they've made. I like Paul Stastny. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury had an unbelievable year. Just an unbelievable year. Yeah, I even think if he regresses like 25%, um, this is a team that's a fringe playoff team. And in the NHL, you can't take you can't take anything from year to year. So much changes, especially in the salary cap era. You know, you lose so many players every year. And, and other teams can surprise you and stuff happens. I'm going to say Vegas. That's the one team right now that I think you can look at, at least on paper. And given all the stuff that happened to them last year and everything that went their way, that could be a team that, who knows, they get injuries, they go on a bad stretch or they get some bad luck with some overtime losses or what have you. Stuff could go their way next year. And, and that could be a team that I think could slide out of the playoffs. All right. Call me crazy on this one. I think the Anaheim Ducks could regress. And it all starts with Corey Perry, who has been a consistent 30-goal scorer at the NHL level. Don't get me wrong. But over the past two years, he scored 36 goals combined He's failed to score 20 goals, at least, in each of the last two campaigns. And his 17 tallies last season were the fewest in a year with at least 70 games played since the year they won the Cup in 06-07 when they beat Ottawa. Oh, geez, flashbacks already. Okay, moving on. Uh, 2014-2015 was the last big playoffs that he had. He scored 10 playoff goals in 18 games when the Ducks reached the conference finals. Over the last three playoffs since then... He has scored a combined four goals. That's 28 playoff games. And in two of the last three seasons in which they made the playoffs, they were first-round exits. And in those series where they were first-round exits, you know how many goals Corey Perry has scored? I can't tell you, Steve. Zero. Hasn't scored a single goal. So if this team continues to rely on John Gibson and Ryan Miller to play stellar hockey and hope that acquisitions like Luke Shen, Andre Schuster, and Brian Gibbons are going to get the job done on one-year deals, I'm sorry, but you're just asking for trouble if you're me. Well, and and you raised some good points about them. And look, when they made the Ryan Kessler move and they got guys like Kevin Bieksa, you know, a couple years ago I was a fan of those moves because you're pushing your chips in the middle and you're trying to win and you're trying to win at all costs, and you don't care about the contracts and the years after, as long as you win. They didn't win, and they have failed to win the playoffs for a number of years. But 
What I will say about Anaheim and the one argument that I have against what you said, and this is just me playing devil's advocate, but look, everyone thought the Washington Capitals were going to take a step back last year. They lost so many guys off that team. They had loaded up last year, and they still lost when it mattered most. Anaheim could be that team that they have had so many things go their way or go not go their way in the playoffs. They've had some shortcomings. Guys like Corey Perry haven't delivered when it matters most, but Maybe next year is the year that Anaheim finally pulls it all together and makes it work. But if it doesn't happen next year, I think you're going to start to see Anaheim go into a rebuild mode, and it's going to be moving on from players like Perry and Getzlaff. And it's a shame for those two players who have been decorated on the world stage for Team Canada and been great, great players. But you know, they won a Stanley Cup when they were on their rookie deals and they weren't necessarily star players. Now that they've had a chance to put their stamp on this team, They've always been a team that's failed to reach the big game and failed to get, get it done in the playoffs. And that'll ultimately be what defines their careers, sadly. Well, continuing, to talk, about, yeah. well, continuing to talk about the playoffs here, um, and you mentioned this in one of the previous questions, so I'll just quickly go through it. Um, as you know, both Alberta teams, Edmonton and Calgary, missed the playoffs last year. Uh, do you think Edmonton has a better chance at making it back in the playoffs than Calgary does? And if so... What's what's going to be Calgary's downfall? Because in case you haven't heard, they signed James Neal and they traded Dougie Hamilton to Carolina in order to get Noah Hannafin. Yeah, I, I actually think, I mean, I said that Edmonton was going to be one of those teams that, that makes the playoffs and has a big rebound year. And I still think they will do that. But I still think Calgary's going to be better, and here's why. Uh, Calgary was a team that I thought on paper looked really, really good last year. They ultimately underachieved. And I think part of that was, they didn't like playing under Glenn Gullitson, and you can see that the last month of the year. They also lost their goaltender, Mike Smith, for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. If Mike Smith is healthy last year, that's a playoff team. I think that's a playoff team that no one would have wanted to face in the first round because they underachieved. Anytime you have got good young players like they do, like Monaghan, Johnny Gaudreau, you added James Neal. I, I like Noah Hannafin. I like their blue line. I think ultimately they underachieved. They got rid of the coach. Bill Peters is coming in. And I think that's going to be a team that's going to be really motivated next year. And I think Calgary could do some damage. And like I said, that division is very winnable. The Central is a lot tougher. And I think that those teams are going to beat each other up. If you can come out of the that division, the Pacific, in the playoffs, you got a good chance in the Western Conference Final. We saw what Vegas was able to do against Winnipeg. I like what Calgary has done. I think they got a little bit of a sour taste in their mouth from last year. I would watch out for Calgary, but I think they're going to be better than that to answer your question. Once again, I'm chatting with Colin Teske. He works at Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto, also the host of the Good, the Bad, the Teske podcast. Sticking with Canadian teams out west, uh, the Winnipeg Jets, as we know, had a fantastic year, made it to the Western Conference Finals, eventually lost to those overachieving Vegas Golden Knights who appeared to be a team of destiny this year. Uh, this past year, I should say, we're already on to uh, the upcoming season. Um, but in the months that have followed their playoff exit, when they were exited, they had a pretty solid crop of goalies. They had Connor Hellebuck uh, leading the way, and they just re-signed to a six-year deal. Uh, they had um, Steve Mason backing him up. They also had Michael Hutchinson, who had a great AHL campaign, and uh, the young and developing Eric Comrie. But over the past several weeks, 
Michael Hutchinson has signed a contract with the Florida Panthers, and uh, the Jets have traded Steve Mason to the Montreal Canadiens, who quickly bought him out. So now they are left with Laurent Brassois as the guy to back up Connor Hellebuck. Are they setting themselves up for failure if they do not get a capable backup goaltender? Well, I mean, I still think that Winnipeg is going to be really, really good. But the problem is they are a Connor Hellebuck season-ending injury away from maybe wasting a really, really talented team's year. And you have to have good backup goaltending. And just from being in Toronto this whole year, as well as Freddie Anderson played, we always were talking about, man, they are really riding Freddie Anderson here. He's playing too many games. And you always wondered that if that would catch up to them at some point. And I think you can argue, you look at the way that Freddie Anderson played in certain games against Boston. Maybe he did play a little bit too much in the regular season. And I'm still thinking back to some games I was watching when the Maple Leafs were playing. And I saw some you know, plays in front of the net where you thought maybe Freddie Anderson was going to go down with an injury. If he gets hurt and they have to roll with Curtis McElhinney, the Leafs don't go anywhere last year. And I think the same can be said for Winnipeg, and no disrespect to a guy like Laurent Francois, but that guy's been a traveling backup for a number of years. Um, I think you do have to solidify the backup position because in the NHL, the key thing is, and analytics prove this, back-to-backs, you need to play the backup on the second night. Having your starter play both games on a back-to-back never ends well, and the stats show that. Yeah. And I look at Connor Hellebuck, and he's probably going to have to play 60-plus games. Laurent Francois has never played more than 25 games in his career. And that, to me, is a little bit troubling. But I still think Winnipeg, um, they had to move Mason. They have cap issues, and they're always going to have cap issues now with their young core and some of their players that want to get paid in the next couple of years. So that's going to be tricky for them. But you're right, having uh, you know Laurent Brossois as your backup is a bit concerning. Yeah, and unfortunate for Laurent Brassois, this has already happened with him, uh, the backup of the Edmonton Oilers, who recently wasted a 108-point uh, season from Connor McDavid, missed the playoffs, Cam Talbot wasn't the same, and Brassois was his backup. So getting back to Cam Talbot, once again, I think the Oilers overused him, and I think uh, the Winnipeg Jets are in danger of uh, doing the same thing. And for those saying, oh, well, that's Cam Talbot, um, Braden Holpe has been one of the best goalies for the past five years. And until the playoffs, he really struggled to find his a game. So it's hasn't just happened to Cam Talbot. Like you said, it's happened to numerous NHL goalies. This isn't just a one-time case here. This is slowly becoming more and more of a problem in this league. Uh, sticking with the central division and sticking with salary cap. I'm looking at what the Minnesota wild have done this off season. And I'm left wondering just how good they're going to be this year. They re-signed Nick Sealer, Kyle Rao, and Ryan Murphy to new contracts. Not too long of deals, rather short term. Sealer was the most at three years. Kyle Rao got a two-year deal. Ryan Murphy got a one-year deal. Uh, they add offensive depth in Matt Bartkowski and sign Greg Patteron to a three-year contract. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. And then a couple of one-years to JT Brown, Matt Hendricks, Eric Fair and Andrew Hammond. And this reminds me a lot of what the Chicago Blackhawks did last offseason. Get players at a cheap price for the short term. And you know what happened to them? They went golfing in April. And this summer, while the, the Blackhawks have dumped Hosa's contract, saving almost $5 million, right now they have roughly $5.4 million to spend to improve their roster for next year. 
And what have they done to improve it? Sign Chris Kunitz to a one-year deal, sign Cam Ward to a one-year deal in case Crawford has health issues again, and sign defenseman Brandon Manning for two years. Should the Blackhawks trade one of their star players? If so, who's heading out the door and why? Well, that's a good question because, you know, the Blackhawks, they got caught. They got caught being too loyal to, to most of their star players and their core that won them multiple Stanley Cups. And if you're a fan of the Blackhawks, at the time of those moves, you probably loved them because you grew up watching Jonathan Taves and Kane, Seabrook, and Keith just be so fun to watch and, and being one of the top teams in the league for you know a good period of time. But the fallout is, now these are players that are playing on the back half of those deals, and that is traditionally when teams pay the biggest price. And I think if you're the Blackhawks, you've got to take one more run with this court. And I'm talking about watch things in January. Wait it out till then. If you're a team that is still hovering around the playoffs and still middle of the pack, that's where I would really consider trying to move one of those star players. But you have to realize that you move a star player with the big cap hits, like those players carry, you're going to have to take bad contracts back. And I don't necessarily know what you can get for them. So the Blackhawks are in a really precarious position where you have these players who ultimately you should have probably moved on from maybe a year ago and tried to trade them when they had more value. But you also don't want to upset a fan base that has grown up watching the likes of Taves, Kane, Seabrook, Keith, and all those players, and get players that ultimately you don't want back. And it's going to be really tough to rebuild things in Chicago, but they are definitely heading towards a rebuild, I think, because they have to realize, you look around your division, Steve, you got Nashville, you have Winnipeg. Those are going to be the top two teams I see in the division for years to come. St. Louis just got better. Colorado is an up-and-coming team. Minnesota is still right there and a competitive team. This might be the year where Stan Bowman says, okay, maybe we take a step back and we start to go into a mini retool and try to get better. Yeah. See, the thing is, Duncan Keith only scored two goals last year. Brent Seabrook was a healthy scratch. And Corey Crawford is only a year younger than Cam Ward, and they're expecting him to be the goalie of the future still moving forward. I I think it might take t- uh, trading a guy like Jonathan Taves or a guy like Patrick Kane to make this team good for the future. Because like you said, it's not that Chicago is getting abundantly worse every year. It's just that everyone else in their division is getting better and they're not. And they don't have the cap space really to make their team as good as it can be. And we're talking about a team that's won three Stanley Cups in this decade. Their fans have been spoiled pretty silly. But if being loyal to those guys means you're not competitive for five to seven years, as much as I hate to say it, I would rather trade either Taves or Kane if it meant getting uh, the assets to to make the team uh, better in the long run. But I would even go one step further, Steve, and say that pretty much the only option the Blackhawks have He's trading a Patrick Kane. If you really want to reset your franchise, he's the only one that I would say mm-hmm. uh, has a lot of value and that teams will overpay for. Jonathan Taves, I see as a player that's just his playing style, 
his hard, aggressive forechecking and, and everything that he does on the ice has caught up to him. Yeah. And, and he's a player that even point-wise has not put up a whole lot of points in his career. Yeah, that's a valid point, actually. I, I don't know what he would command, but Patrick Kane, I can tell you, he will command a lot. Yeah. And that is probably the only move you have right now to reset things. Yeah, and... Like, you can't, you can't keep trading contracts to Arizona and make it yeah. that way. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, they got Marcus Kruger back, so hey... Hey, there you go. He, Welcome he back, I guess. Out and move back. Like, he never seems to leave Chicago long. Uh, I just hope he just settles into a new city. Like, stop moving the guy. He's probably sick and tired of moving at this point. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be interesting times in Chicago for sure. Uh, quickly, some rapid-fire items. Which signing slash re-signing so far this offseason has been the most overrated in your opinion? Overrated. Overrated. That is a good question, Steve. I'm going to say David Perron in St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, I, I think David Perron had the ultimate chip on his shoulder playing for Vegas when he got exposed in expansion. And I, I think going back to St. Louis, yeah, he can still play with some good players, but not sure that puts the Blues over the edge. Um, I mean, Ilya Kovalchuk is intriguing to me. Yeah. I'm not going to say it's overrated, but... Uh, that's a player now that's played in Russia for a couple of years. He's getting up there in age. Like, he's on the wrong side of 30. And, you know, the Kings made that move, obviously, because they thought they had a deal in place for Max Pacioretty at the draft in Montreal, and that didn't happen. And we know about Pacioretty then firing his agent and hiring a new one after that deal didn't get done. So I think L.A.'s hands were tied, and they had to make a move, and Kovalchuk was the one guy they could get on the cheap and not have to give up any assets for. But... I think that could be one of the more overrated moves because I'm just not sold on L.A. And I think their core, kind of like Chicago, um, needs to be reworked. And they're getting older, and it's getting really tough to fix that team on the fly. Which signing slash re-signing has been the most underrated so far, in your opinion? Hmm, underrated. I'm going to say this, and Canucks fans are probably not going to like me for saying this, but <laughs> Jay Beagle. I know that some fans don't like the term on that deal, but uh, Jay Beagle is a guy that when you watch the Washington Capitals, now they won a Stanley Cup, he was a big reason why. And it might not show up on the stat sheet, but that guy does everything, right? Like, Barry Trotz used him in every situation. And I'm talking about penalty killing. I'm talking about being on there in key situations. And I think for Vancouver, that's a team that is young, and they got a lot of guys that are probably playing outside of their capabilities because they have to, being on a young team. Mm -hmm. I think someone like Jay Beagle walking in after winning a Stanley Cup I think is really going to help that team. The number might not be great, but it's not like you have this player for five, six years. It's a three-year contract, and I think it's, it's one of those contracts that you know you're going to get a lot of value because Jay Beagle has been through everything. And his story is incredible. I just love that he grinded in the ECHL, worked his way up, and he was never guaranteed much. And now he's finally making a little bit of money to help himself out in the long run. He's finally getting that big contract that he deserves. But I still think he's going to add a ton of value to Vancouver. Do you think someone is going to get offer sheeted this someone? If so, which player and why? Offer sheets, I think, are so untouchable now just after what happened with Kevin Lowe in Edmonton and the way that they went about it with Brian Burke, and Brian Burke just got so mad in the media. 
I'll take it one just, step further. How about the Flyers and Shea Weber? Yeah, exactly, and that was one too. I think that happened so close together that I think teams now are a little bit gun-shy of that. And let me tell you, uh, offer sheets scare the crap out of me if I'm an <laughs> Ottawa Senators fan because you look at Matt Duchesne, you look at Mark Stone, those are two players that right now, coming up in a year, could be free agents could walk and it, it just scares me that those are players that teams could swoop in and try to offer them the money it scares me really really does given everything that's happened in ottawa that's something that really does scare me if the leafs let's say someone offers sheets neil under it's for like 10 million a year the Leafs would be entitled to like four first round draft picks do you think the Leafs would be more accepting to just say to the other team, okay, you can have them, and you can give us four first-round picks while you're at it? You know what? I'm going to say no, because this is a Maple Leafs team that needs to win. Mm-hmm. They need to win right now. Draft picks are important, and let me tell you, like uh, draft picks are very valuable. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. you just brought in John Tavares. You've got Austin Matthews. You have, you've had two back-to-back years where – yeah, you've lost in the first round, and, and I don't think you can get too mad at them because Washington was favored and Boston was even favored this past year. But in the NHL, upsets happen all the time in the playoffs. You've got to win a round eventually. So I don't think fans want to see picks, and they don't want to have picks that are players that are two years away from being impact players. So I, I, I would say that even if some team did mix in an offer sheet, especially the Islanders, the Islanders really want to get back at Toronto. Throwing an offer sheet out there would be that kind of move. I still think the Maple Leafs match. What is the biggest head-to-head matchup heading into next year? And if it's not Caps and Penguins, explain why it's not Caps-Penguins. Well, I'm going to say Islanders-Maple Leafs. And it's one of the first times all year that the Islanders are going to be on hockey night in Canada. <laughs> it is it has been years since the Islanders have got that kind of marquee matchup, especially on Canadian TV. Leafs and Islanders is going to be the one matchup that I'm looking forward to. I always love Caps and Pens, my favorite rivalries in the sport. Underrated is Columbus and Pittsburgh. Yeah. They've had some epic, epic battles that stem from some playoff series they've had in recent years. Especially with That's the off-ice awesome. comments from Rutherford and Torts that further adds oh, fuel to exactly. the flyer. Jack Johnson and that whole issue. Yeah, so that's going to be a really underrated one for me. I really want to see that, but for me, it's Islanders and Leafs. That's the one matchup I want to watch. I think if we're talking about throughout the season, Tampa, Toronto, especially if Tampa gets Carlson, having Hedman on one deep pairing, Carlson on the other, having Matthews on one line and Tavares on the other. What more could a hockey fan want than and, and offense me, galore? Let me say this. I mean, you look at Tampa Bay. Yes, they're in the same division. And I've heard Sens fans that get mad because they don't want to see Eric Carlson playing in the division. They don't want to play against them all the time in the regular season. I don't care. I give, me, give me two more chances to see Carlson a year. I'll take that. Yeah, that, that's what I say. And I say this. I would rather Tampa Bay win the Cup than the Maple Leafs win the Cup. Yeah. The Maple Leafs just added a big guy like John Tavares. Yeah. If, they, if Tampa Bay all of a sudden gets Eric Carlson, then you're looking at this crazy matchup in the first round, let's say, between Tampa Bay and Toronto. One of those teams is going to go home. Mm. You can knock the playoffs as small as you want, but as a Sens fan, do you want to see Toronto moving on, or do you want to see Toronto having a tougher time 
coming out of their side of the bracket in the playoffs. I think that's the best possible outcome. And Tampa Bay, let's be real, they have a lot of good prospects, and they can offer you a lot. Mm-hmm. So Ottawa could be set up really well in that trade. So I really want to see that. I think um, I like dynasties in sports. I like the Golden State Warriors. I don't care that they have a super team. I kind of want to see an equivalent of a super team in hockey, just to see. And I think it'd be great for the sport. I I totally 100% agree with you there. It would also just be the biggest troll to Leaf fans saying, oh, we got John Tavares, we can win the cup now, right? And then Yasmin comes out of nowhere and says, ha ha, yeah, nice try, boys, nice try. Uh, that is Colin Teske, uh, the host uh, of uh, the Good, the Bad, the Teske podcast works at Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto. Colin, if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to talk sports, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Teske Radio. That's where you can find a lot of my tweets on whatever seems pop in my mind. I've been tweeting a lot about the NHL free agency. Huge basketball fan. I've been into the World Cup recently, too. So if you're anti-soccer, do not follow me at Teske Radio. On Twitter, you can also find me at the good, the bad, Teske dot blog spot. That's where a lot of my written work can be found. You can hear me on Sportsnet 590 The Fan all over the place. I do weekends. I do evenings during the week. And in podcast form, I also do a sports podcast called The Good, the Bad, and Teske. So you can always listen to that when you have some free time. Excellent stuff, Colin. Appreciate the time as always, and we hope to catch up with you very soon. Steve, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Happy to do this anytime you want me to. All right. Sounds great, man. He's Colin Teske. I'm Steve Ellsworth. This has been a special edition of the Lace Em Up podcast. Talk again soon.